Behold Our God. That's really what I should probably title the sermon today, Behold Our God. We're going to see some things. This is, this is a kind of exciting time for me. Um, we've been in Genesis. I've been preaching through Genesis for, I don't know, it seems like the majority of probably all of my ministry, really, all the years of my ministry. But long story short, we've been in Genesis a long time. We're finally to the final, what's called Toledot, the original way that, that um, Genesis was written. How many of you know the chapter markers that are in your Bible today were not there originally? Right? Yeah. The chapter markers are not themselves inspired. Just throwing that out there to you. So, but... Originally, the book of Genesis was written in basically ten different segments that were all put together, and they were called Toledots. A Toledot is basically a Hebrew telling of where something came from, typically where people came from. How did these people get to here? Well, these are the generations of. A lot of times you'll see that saying, these are the generations of. In other words, this is the history of this thing. By the way, just kind of a, as a side note, Toledots are always historical narrative. One of the reasons I have so much frustration with theologians and especially pastors who try to take Genesis and say, well, it's just poetic, it's just mythical, is that they literally don't even understand the genre then. This is a Toledot. It is not, never has been, and never will be mythical or poetic. This is, at least the people writing it believe it was a historical narrative event. It is like the early version of a history textbook. Okay, so that's what we're dealing with in Genesis. If you think that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are mythology or poem, I would love to talk with you. Okay, enough of that. Uh, I did uh, realize my daughter wanted me to make one more announcement. That was, we found out this week that our fifth and final Wilson installment, which will be here in December, will be a boy. Why not add a little one more testosterone tornado to the mix, right? (laughs) The wrestling at our house will not abate for a long time, I can see. So, (laughs) I'm thinking so many things in my head. I'm sure my wife was, when they told her that, she was like, oh, boy. (laughs) All right. Well, we're excited, though. Genesis 37. Let let me do this real fast. um, Let me give you the rundown of chapter 36. Last time I preached, we covered chapter 36. And I told you that a lot of times chapter 36 is seen as something of a throwaway chapter. And, uh, And I think that's disrespectful to the text and i think it's disrespectful to the lord for us to treat any chapter of scripture like that god is not into giving us superfluous commands i don't know if you, that's kind of a big word i suppose superfluous more than what's needed right have you ever heard of that so if you have somebody who went out say deer hunting and they shoot the deer with their 308 and they track it down and it's you know dead motionless but they shoot it three more times just to make sure Those last three shots were superfluous. It was more than what was needed. Well, God doesn't give his word that way to us. If he gives us a portion of his word, there is a very good reason that he's giving us this portion of his word. It's not just there for no reason. It's not just there to add filler to the commentary, okay? 
It's not superfluous. It's not unnecessary. Okay. So, and, and the reason I say that is because I think there are some people who think that about certain areas of Scripture. I don't know that they would necessarily admit that outright or out loud, but it's a common sentiment nonetheless. And so what happens in their mind, in some people's mind, a mature Christian is the one that camps out in the important parts of Scripture, but they don't pay too much attention to those kind of obscure, those unnecessary parts. But you see, everything God says is important. Everything. We don't want to add anything to it, and we also don't want to take anything away from it. None of God's word is unneeded. Psalm 119, 160 says, The entirety of God's word is truth, and every one of his righteous judgments endures forever. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God or inspired by God. All scripture. So there's not parts of it that we can just throw away and ignore. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped, might be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So skipping over parts of God's word simply because we don't like those passages, they're not the exciting passages, we don't enjoy them. Well, that's a surefire way to shortchange your spiritual equipping and your training in righteousness. It is true that there are parts of Scripture that are more exciting to read and fun to read than others. It is not true that, therefore, we can just skip over or gloss over those parts. Okay? Even those genealogies, they don't seem all that exciting, right? Matthew starts out with a genealogy. There's a genealogy in Genesis 5. There's all these. Why were they even there? Well, they're there for a very important purpose. They're there to show, number one, this is actually a historical narrative. This is not a myth. Here are the people involved. I can remember asking that of a professor in um, seminary, and I never got a reply to that. Because there was one specific uh, professor who argued that the beginning of Genesis was myth. And so I sent him in an email the genealogy, and I say, where, which one of these people, tell me which one of these people are poetic and myth, so that we can know where this actually starts being historical. Then get a reply to that. How strange. Well, it's not myth. It really happened. Okay. Here's why I say this, though, about Scripture. It's an important point, and I'm sorry to hound on it, but it's kind of like a kid. If you let a kid only eat what they want to eat, do you know what kind of diet they will have? Some of you are like, yeah, same diet I got right now. <laughs> Ice cream, chocolate chip cookies, donuts, right? pizza occasionally. <laughs> right? And hopefully, hopefully, some of you are learning. I, I might be one that's learning this. Maybe I'm overnourished. But hopefully, as you get older, you find out there are some... Um, there are some foods that you learn to kind of, I hate to use the word tolerate, but that's basically what you do. You learn to eat this food because you know it's high in nutrients. It may not taste as good as the ice cream or the cookies, but I know that what I'm getting out of it is very good for me. And so therefore I will put up with the, maybe it's a little more bland tasting, but I'll put up with it because it's nutritious. Well, sometimes that's the way our Bible reading has to be as well. There are parts of the scripture that they might not be as exciting to go through, but they still contain very important truths. They are, in, in essence, 
giving us a spiritual nutrient. And we live in a time and an age and a place where we have a lot of Christians out there who are very, if you will, spiritually malnourished. And the reason they are so malnourished is because they've decided to camp out in those few little places that they really love and they forget the rest of it. They ignore the rest of it. Well, you're not going to be a mature Christian if that's your style of Bible study. Just like you're not going to be a healthy individual if the only thing you eat are the sweet and savory foods, right? Sometimes it's the bland-tasting foods that are really the most nutritious, the greens, the onions, garlics, the beans, the garden vegetables. And if we deliberately skip those foods because they aren't as sweet or savory to our tongue, we'll have a body that's lacking in some essential nutrients. We can do the same thing with our Bible study. You see this every day in, in America. Half the people who call themselves Christians in America, they've memorized Philippians 4.13, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? It's on the eye black, it's on the wrist tape, it's on the bat handle. And they have no idea. Oh, well, the very next verse talks about sharing in Paul's suffering. Did you put that on there? Can we put 4.13 to 14? Is that okay? They have no idea Paul wrote that from a prison cell. No, because that's the sweet part of Scripture. That's the one that tastes good to my tongue, right? Oh, that's why I know Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Good, not of evil. Prosper you to give you a hope and a future. Now, I'll shock you when I say this, but it is true. You are one of those people that God is talking about. He does have a great plan for you. However, I would also like to point out that that entire diatribe in, verse, or in chapter 29 is addressing Israel in bondage. The people are suffering. And I think that's very, very important because a lot of the church in America today thinks that the Christian life is one of only blessing. God's going to be with you. That's true. God is going to be with you. And he's going to make you rich. Eh. Spiritually, that's true. He might make you physically rich. That is possible. But he might not. And I promise you this, the, the Christian life is not one of just good, wonderful, lovely experiences all the time. It is very often a walk through tough times. It is a learning that even as I'm going through the tough times, through the suffering, God is with me. That he's the one that's watching over me. That when I get to the very bottom, the very end of life, the, the end and the depths of my resources are gone. That he is the one who's going to hold me up and sustain me and walk through it with me. That's the essence of the Christian life. It does not mean come to Jesus and he'll give you a new car, a new house, and everything will go well. If you believe that, you are set up to fail. You're set up to the first time you go through a little bit of trial... You're set up to fail. In fact, Jesus even said something about these people. He told the, the parable of the sower, and he said there's this one kind of person that when they hear the word, they're, they're immediately excited, and they, they spring forth. But the first time that the sun comes out, it scorches them, and they wither away because they have no root in themselves. I don't want to tell you a gospel that's not the real gospel. I don't want to set you up to fail. I want to tell you right up front, 
All the parts of God's word are very, very necessary. And part of that is because you will go through wonderful mountaintop experiences as a Christian. You know what else you're going to go through as a Christian? You're going to go through valleys too. And the same God that was... This is going to choke me up. The same God that was there on the mountaintop will be there in the valley. He will not leave you, nor will he forsake you. That is the hope. Okay. So... We said last time we were not going to skip over that chapter just because it seemed bland. And we found out by putting on our little mining helmet and clicking on our light, putting our shoulder to the wheel, that there was some really good stuff in chapter 36. So let me remind you of a few of those things we learned. Number one, because the Edomites were from Esau, remember that chapter 36 was about the Edomites, that would be the descendants of Esau. (coughs) Because the Edomites were from Esau, meaning they were still descended from Abraham, They were the brother of Jacob, or Israel. God did not allow Joshua to invade and conquer them when they were coming out of the Exodus. Number two, the Edomites left Canaan. Remember, they left the Promised Land. Remember, that's so interesting because Esau was so angry because he thought Jacob had stolen his birthright, which basically meant the Promised Land. And then Esau gets what he wants. And then later we see Esau going, eh, this isn't what I wanted after all. See you later. And he goes south. Where did he go? He went to a place that would eventually be known as Edom. Very small area, about 20 miles wide, 100 miles long. Why would he go there? There's mountains. It's not a good place to take livestock. Why in the world would he go there? He didn't want to take care of livestock. He was after copper. There were a lot of copper mines in that region. And remember, this is during the Bronze Age. How do you make bronze? Well, 65% copper, roughly 35% tin. So the, the majority of what you need to make bronze is copper. So if you had control of copper mines, you, that was a very fast way to be very wealthy. And that's obviously what Esau was after. And he did become very wealthy. We were also introduced to Esau's son, Eliphaz. Remember that? We said, who's this guy, Eliphaz? Well, Eliphaz would at one point travel a great distance to comfort his suffering friend, Job. Remember Eliphaz the Temanite? That was Esau's son, Eliphaz the Temanite. He founded a city called Timon and became known as Eliphaz the Temanite. You can find him playing a large role in the book of Job. He starts at chapter 2, verse 11, and you'll see him throughout the book. He's one of, one of Job's friends. It gives him a whole lot of wisdom, but he's actually wrong in the end. Why? Because he was full of man's wisdom, the world's wisdom. And that's what we see in Esau. Taman, by the way, the city that Eliphaz founded was so well known for its sages and wise men that Jeremiah actually mentions it. Jeremiah 49.7, he talks about, is there no more wisdom in Taman? If you need wisdom, isn't that the place you're supposed to go? We also learn that Eliphaz, despite being known as a wise man and a friend of Job, was also the father of Amalek. Why do we care about Amalek? The Amalekites. The Amalekites who would become great enemies of Israel came from Eliphaz. It was the son of Eliphaz, who was the son of Esau, who was the grandson of Abraham. So when you're reading through these stories in the Old Testament and you're seeing the Amalekites and some of these other like pagan tribes are like, where did these guys come from? They came from Abraham. Abraham. 
Think about this. They didn't possess the faith of Abraham, but they were descended from him. But because they didn't possess the faith of Abraham, they did not experience the blessing of God of Abraham. See, if you don't have the faith of Abraham, the scripture says you're not actually counted as his son. And if you do have the faith of Abraham, whether you share in his genetic lineage or not, the scripture says you are a son of Abraham. There's a, there's a, a, a great argument I love to have with my Presbyterian friends out of that, but it's not what we're here to do today. Five, we learn that chapter 36 is also directly connected to the book of Obadiah. Why do we care about the book of Obadiah? Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. Well, the entire book of Obadiah is basically about, in fact, exclusively, God's divine judgment on Edom, that's Esau's descendants, for their wickedness. Remember, these pagan tribes are actually coming from Abraham. How could such pagan people come from Abraham? Listen to me. It doesn't take long. To become unbelievably depraved and wicked when you decide to reject the living God. These, these were from Abraham. They would have learned about the same God that Jacob did. It doesn't take long. You may look around our society and notice that. It really doesn't matter if you were brought up in a Christian home if you reject that Christian faith. In fact, you'll probably be worse than the rest. Some of the worst heresies in history have come from that exact thing. And that brings us to chapter 37. Okay. Boy, it is quiet in here now. That brings us to chapter 37. We will be introduced to the man that the biblical record will now fixate upon for the final 13 chapters of Genesis. And that figure, of course, is Joseph. He is so central to the book of Genesis. I don't know if you've thought about this, but roughly one-fourth of the entire text of Genesis is dedicated to the story of Joseph. That is a very central figure in the biblical text. So we're crossing the Rubicon, so to speak, because this is the 10th the and final, the final Toledot. This is the final generations of, this is the final peace, if you will, the final section of the book of Genesis, and we're starting that. So I can tell you, you know, I know um, some churches, they like to do like themes for the year. So I'm just letting you know my theme for this year will be Joseph. And I can tell you that because I preach once a month, and uh, I never do more than one chapter. And there's 13 chapters left, and they're all about Joseph. So you do this mathematically, you find out the theme of this year for me is Joseph. I'm just letting you know. I'll be, I'll be looking this guy up for the next year. All right. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We ask that you would show us great things from your word today, Lord. I ask you use me as a mouthpiece today to encourage and edify your people through the truth of your word. Let my preaching and teaching be accurate to your word and to your spirit, God. Father, please speak through your word today for the building up of your people and the advancement of your kingdom. May all that's said and done today bring honor and glory to you and to you alone. For you alone are worthy of it, Lord. It's in Jesus' holy name we ask. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, turn with me. Chapter 37. We'll see if we get through this whole thing. There's so much in here. All right, chapter 37. 
Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning in the land of Canaan. Why do we care about that? Because remember, chapter 36 was about Esau who left the land of his father's sojournings. So here's what we're saying. Esau left Canaan. He went down south. He made a whole bunch of money. He was the kid that left the farm. He went and got the big city job and struck out and made it really rich. But Jacob, Jacob stayed at home. Verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. There's our Toledot marker, letting, know, letting us know we've arrived at the last section of the book. Joseph being 17 years old. I love this part. I, I teach 17-year-olds. That's, that's why this just makes so much sense to me. Because there's so much that happens here and you're like, man, this guy just does not. He is naive and has no wisdom. Like, yeah. yeah when you're 17, that pretty much encapsulates life, right? Like, you think you're really smart? Like, dude, I, you don't even know. I'm so smart. I do calculus. Yeah, but you don't know how to start a lawnmower. Like, no, I'm really smart. One year, a few, a few years ago, this is going to blow your mind, at a small little class, the very last hour a lot of times is my smallest class. I think I had only five or six kids. And so I have a, what I think of as a regular clock, an analog clock, just like that, back at the back of my room. A couple of kids, they look back there and they're like, hey, what time is it? I'm like, are you serious? The clock's right there. I can't read that. Excuse me? I never learned how to read one of those clocks. You're kidding me. Guess what I did? I literally got online and I printed off the little second grade worksheets that have a little clock face where you draw in the things and say, what time is it? I pass it out. I teach them how to, how to tell time on the clock. And I said, tomorrow I'm going to give this to you as a quiz. And they're like, this is science. I'm like, dude, you have to know this for life. This is Stratford, okay? Please, you have to know more than that before you graduate. I'm sorry. Anyway, Joseph, 17 years old, he's out pasturing the flocks with his brothers. Now, not all of his brothers. Remember, there's a lot of them. There's a gaggle of them. There's 12 of them. There's a dozen brothers. There's 13 total. A dozen brothers and one little sister, right? And remember, Joseph is almost the youngest. It's one thing to be taking orders from your brother. It's quite when he's a young brother. Any of y'all have younger brothers? I'm the oldest in my home. I'm the oldest brother of four. Usually, my job was keeping the others from killing each other. You know what I'm talking about? All right, you got one brother picking on the other. You go in and you, you kind of save them out of it, right? Can you imagine if you're the oldest, your little, you know, your little brother, your little sister, they're the ones giving you orders? How would that sit with you? Listen, I'm not, I'm not proud of this. I probably shouldn't tell you this. You'd be like, this guy doesn't need to be a pastor. I was probably, I was in my mid-30s and I went home to help with harvest. And my little brother kept being lippy one day. I took him down in the middle of the wheat field. I, I, we're both in our 30s by this point, okay? It's not like we're 10 years old. And then all the other guys are around. They're like, what are you doing? I'm like, stay out of it. You ain't talking to me like that. I don't care how old you think I am, and I don't care how old you get. This is not one of my finer moments. I imagine his older brothers kind of have those same kind of feelings with him, right? This is the, he's the bratty kind of spoiled little kid, and he needs a whooping. Right? 
Don't pretend you've never thought those things. If you have a family, if you have other brothers and sisters, that's gone through your head. Joseph is out. Here's what it says. Pastoring the flock with his brothers. He's a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. The Hebrew actually says he brought a report of their evil. So it wasn't like he was just tattling on them. They did legitimately evil stuff, and he refused to cover it up. And that's a big deal. And most of you, if you've lived long enough, you've seen this, where you work. There's a kind of camaraderie where you work or where you do business or even among a family of, hey, listen, we're all going to go in this together. Ain't nobody going to tell the boss. You know what I'm saying? And Joseph refuses to take part in that. Why is that a big deal? A lot of times that's how you become one of the guys. Hey, don't tell on us. Okay, I won't. You want to take part? Nope. But I ain't no snitch. Well, Joseph is just that. He is, in fact, a snitch. And by the way, there's a time where a Christian must be one as well. I'll just throw that out there. He's out with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Remember, these are the concubines. These are the two maidservants of um, Leah and Rachel. So who is he out with? Well, the boys he would have been with, Bilhah's boys were Dan and Naphtali. Zilpah's boys were Gad and Asher. And then you've got Joseph out there with them. He's the younger brother. They're out there working, and he most likely is basically inspecting their work. It's a nice way of saying he's not working. He comes home, and he tells his dad what's actually going on. And so to his dad, he's a very valuable employee. Oh, these guys were doing that, and I didn't even know about it. Nobody's going to tell me because all those boys are doing this stuff together. They're taking part of this evil. They're not going to tell me that they've been doing it, but Joseph will. Now, listen, it might have been the right thing to do, but I, I think it goes without saying it's not going to engender warmth and admiration from those four boys that they just got tattled on to dad. Okay. Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. Boy, there's a recipe for family harmony and tranquility, isn't there? (laughs) Twelve other boys in the family, at least two of whom were not squeamish about spilling blood. And I'm going to take the youngest one and make him the obvious favorite. Matthew, you should be telling your dad right now, that's me. What's the deal? Let's get the robe, man. (laughs) Matthew comes in next week, black eye. Didn't work out. (laughs) Now, here's the weird part. When it says a robe of many colors, most of us think of, well, a robe with lots of colors. But that phrase doesn't actually mean colors. It, it, It may not have been colorful fabric at all. It actually means a long ornamental robe. One of the translations, the the way the the Hebrew is phrased is a coat of many hands. What does that mean? Well, it could mean lots of very colorful, which would have been very flamboyant in that day and age. It could also mean it has some sort of ornamental patterns woven into it or sewn into it. But what it certainly means is it was a long-sleeved, long-legged garment. So, who cares? 
Well, if you've been out on the farm, I was raised on a large farm in western Kansas. If you work around cattle or sheep or goats, if you're somebody like Justin and you know agricultural life, you will probably notice long sleeves is not the most convenient for work. It's kind of like if you saw somebody today in a three-piece suit and a briefcase, you, you might not know where he worked, but you could be assured he didn't work out in the pastures with the cattle, right? Well, that's what this was. A workman didn't wear this kind of clothing. A workman had shortened garments, either sleeveless or very shortened sleeves, and it wasn't very long down their legs. Why? Because they had to be able to move around. But they also wanted it to stay cool because they're working through the heat of the day. See, if you wore this long, flowing robe, you weren't working through the heat of the day. You were the one that other people fanned. You were the foreman. So it's obvious to his brothers who are out here working with the sheep, who are doing the hard agricultural work throughout the day, <coughs> and little princess here, has his long robe and never has to come out and work hard. Would you be a little bit jealous? I, I'm, I'm just... I hope I today would have more Christian character. But I can tell you this. When I was growing up, if that would have been one of my brothers, I would have obviously seen that he needed a little roughing up. This guy's not tough. Man, what could possibly go wrong with that, right? The real idea behind the ancient Hebrew phrase, James Montgomery Boyce and other commentators say, is that it was not just colorful and flamboyant, but it extended all the way down to the wrist and the ankles, meaning and marking him out as a non-workman. In the agrarian society of the day, this was not what the working man wore. Instead, this longer garment spoke of privilege and status. Any man who wore a long tunic of many colors like this was obviously the foreman of the work crew, something akin to the three-piece suit of today. He was the one who was watching while the other guys were doing the hard work. If your little brother, your little 17-year-old brother was the one watching while you were doing all the hard work, and you had been doing that hard work since you were, say, 12 or 10. Because remember, one of the boys had found the mandrakes in the field when he was no more than 10 or 12. So they're out in the field working by the time they're that age. And old Joseph here is 17, and he hasn't known a day of work in his life. Would you be a little bit jealous? Would you be a little bit cynical, a little bit jaded? Because I can honestly tell you, I'm certain I would. The problem with Joseph is he has some great character traits, no doubt about it. And God is going to use that. But he has some character traits that are far, far underdeveloped because he's never known a day of hard work in his life. And there are character traits that you don't develop without a day or two of hard work. He doesn't know what it is to have calluses on his hands. He doesn't know what it is to have sore hands or legs or feet. Oh, he's, he's protected from all of that. He's very entitled. He's spoiled, okay? Let's just be honest. He's a spoiled little brat. 
But think of this. Think of this from Jacob's point of view, though. Okay, this is something that I had never thought about before until a couple days ago. Remember, Joseph is from who? It's okay. You can say it. Joseph's from Rachel. Joseph is from his favorite wife. His favorite wife that died two chapters ago. Remember? Benjamin and Joseph are the two from not just his favorite wife, but probably what Jacob saw as his only wife. Jacob probably would have seen Rachel as his actual wife, if you will, and the others as his concubines. You know, his wife of circumstance. Rachel was the one that he did all the work for. Rachel was the one that he went through 20 years of having wages changed and being oppressed and all of that. It was for her. And Joseph is her oldest boy. And she's gone now. In his mind, Joseph is obviously the heir apparent. That's the other thing that robe signified. It wasn't just that it was a colorful robe. It was letting all the other brothers know, Hey guys, just letting you know, one of these days when dad retires, I'm going to be taking care of this show. So I'll uh, I'll be inspecting your work. I want to see plenty of effort here, boys. Right? And these guys are like, you've never worked a day in your life. You don't know what effort is. Okay, I'm, uh, you know, he's the guy. He's got his Starbucks latte and his clipboard. It looks good, boys. Yep. Boy, it looks hot out here, isn't it? Woo, it's a hot one today. I'm going to head back to the tent. I'll come back and inspect the work in a few hours. Keep going. You're doing well. Good job. See you later. What would you think of that guy? So it's only natural Jacob would have a soft spot for these two boys because they are from his, in his mind, his wife, his favorite wife, his, the one that he had captured his heart. So I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that's probably where it comes from. Verse 4, but his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, and they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. I can understand that. It's a natural reaction to favoritism. Mom, Dad, if you would like a, a great way, a perfect way to absolutely upset, spoil the tranquility and harmony of your household, start playing favorites. What's crazy when you think about it, the ironic thing is, Jacob knows that. Esau was his daddy's favorite. And Jacob was bitter because of that. He knows that, and here he is just... Years down the line, he, I'm sure at that time, you know, he sees his dad playing favors to Esau, and he's like, by gosh, when I'm older, I'm never doing that. And here he is, doing that. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream. Now remember, up to this point, every single dream that we have recorded in the book of Genesis is prophetic from the Lord. Don't tell me God does not speak through dreams. He absolutely does. Now, if you tell me that every dream you have is prophetic and from the Lord, I'm going to call, you know, rolling hills for you. I'm talking about, I got somebody, they need help. But to say that God does not work through dreams is to say that the biblical record doesn't exist. God does work through dreams. He may still work through dreams at times today. Maybe you've had a dream where the Lord was giving you a premonition about something, showing you something. That's possible. The book of Hebrews talks about it. The book of Job talks about it. Psalms talk about it. That God speaks through dreams and warns people through dreams. That's possible. 
So what does Joseph do? Ah, a sage of wisdom. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And this is interesting because in the, in the Hebrew, it's actually a play on his name. Yosef, <clears throat> Yosef means to add to. His, uh, his, remember, when his mom had him, she said, that I will name him Joseph because the Lord will add to me yet another son. Right? So that's what Joseph means, to add to. So there's a play on words going on here. When they say it in the Hebrew, they use his word. They hated Yosef. They, they, it's almost like they Joseph, Joseph all the more. They hated him all the more. They added more hatred to what they already had. He said to them, hey guys, hey guys, come here. Hey guys, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Hey guys, come in here, come in here, come in here. Come here. You're going to love this, you're going to love this. I had a dream where I was your ruler, isn't that crazy? Guys, check out my robe. It's, gonna, it's the real deal. God has told me it's going to happen. I am indeed going to rule over you. Only a 17-year-old would have this kind of logic, right? These guys have got to hear this. <laughs> Just say, I feel like if you're in my household, you do that when I'm growing up. Like, that's a great way to eat a bat, right? <laughs> Bing! I had a dream, huh? Here's another one. <laughs> We're putting you to sleep. How's the dream now, right? He doesn't have a lot of tact. Hey, guys, listen to this. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheave arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it, and they bowed down to mine. And his brothers, this is not lost on his brothers. They know immediately what the meaning of the dream is. Are you indeed going to reign over us? Are you indeed going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Nine, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. The sun, the moon, the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Now you can, you can see like Jacob as he's watching the boys, the first dream that Jacob tells everybody about the sheaves bowing down. And everybody's so mad. Jacob's over there chuckling. But now all of a sudden, Joseph's dreamed another dream. And mom and dad are bowing down too. Now all of a sudden... Jacob's not chuckling. When he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What's this dream that you've dreamed? Ah, now dad's in on it. Ah, not so funny, is it now, dad? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, obviously. But his father kept the saying in mind. Might have made him mad, but he's, I, I think he's thinking, maybe this is from the Lord. The problem here is this. Joseph has some incredible character qualities about him. He has, he has an absolutely unbending and unwavering commitment to the truth. I'm going to live the truth. I'm going to tell the truth. However, he is also a very entitled, arrogant Self-centered brat. This is not the place in the scripture where Joseph is something of a word picture about Jesus. In fact, we could actually say this is the part of the scripture where he's just the opposite of that. Right? Jesus comes and he lays his life down. Joseph says, hey, gather around. All of you will serve me. Jesus comes and says, I will serve you all. 
In fact, I think that's something we've missed at this day and age, but the word minister means a servant. Today we have entire churches that are little more than cults of personality where the guy behind the pulpit thinks everybody there is there to serve him and help him and help make him famous and, hey, share my stuff on social media, guys. That's not a minister. That's not a pastor. That's a wolf. But it's not a minister. Jesus said, the greatest among you will be servant of all. The greatest among you will be the one who lays his life down to help others. Not who uses a whole bunch of other people to exalt himself. And you see, that's where Joseph's heart was at that point. Hey guys, I've got this dream. My dream is I'm going to be great. I'm going to be big. And you see, the problem is a lot of us have that same dream, if we're really honest. We have this dream. We see our life story. It's like, it's like a movie. It's playing out. Ah, I've got this great dream for myself. I'm going to be so well-known and powerful and rich and famous and all the rest. But it's not going according to plan. But what I can do is, Jesus, you come in and you make my story work. You come be the, the great supporting actor in this movie. I, you can't be the lead role because I've already got that covered. But I need you to come in and to make sure you're going to be the impetus. You're going to be the great power that makes all my dreams come true. You see, I think that's probably where the heart's posture of Joseph was at that point. Joseph goes, I've got dreams of grandeur. And God's going to make them happen. Well, I have bad news for you. God's dream is not your grandeur. It is his. It is the glory of God. He's not going to come in and make your dreams work. He's going to come in and crush your dreams. Didn't think you'd hear that in a Christian church today, did you? Come on, preacher. You're supposed to tell me that Jesus is going to make all my dreams come true. No, Jesus is going to crush your dreams and he's going to give you new ones. He's going to make his will come true, not yours. Your dreams could very well be being propelled out of a sinful heart posture. And he's going to crush that. You know what he does to Joseph? Does he make all Joseph's dreams come true? Well, sort of. The dreams that he gave to Joseph did come true. But they didn't come true the way Joseph thought they would come true, did they? They sure weren't along Joseph's timeline. I did the math so I could figure out how long Joseph was in different places. You know, he was in Potiphar's house at least 11 years, in prison at least two. He has this dream, God's going to make me great. And the next thing he knows, he's in a pit being sold off as a slave and then working for a eunuch, the captain of the guard for Pharaoh. He's going to learn what hard work is. I promise you that. You see, there are some things about him that need changing before God can utilize him in that specific manner. And God's going to do that. And the problem with us a lot of times is, oh, God's given me this dream. I'm going to go do it. I'm going to, you know, accomplish this for the Lord or for the kingdom. That's, I'm not saying you shouldn't have those dreams. But they may not be on your timeline either. 
We, we are a culture that's into microwaving and God's into marinating. I'm talking about. He's going to put me up high, which he is. He's going to put Joseph up high. He's going to save the known world from famine through Joseph. But it ain't tomorrow. Why did he give Joseph the dream when he was 17? Why don't you wait till he's 30 then? Well, I can't tell you for sure, but I have a, a suspicion. My suspicion is this. He knows he's about to put Joseph through the fire. And by the way, in case you're wondering, it was God who put Joseph through the fire. A lot of times we go through t- trials, tough times in our life, and like, the devil's really attacking me. Are you, are you sure? Maybe God's the one putting you through the trial because he's the one that's shaping your character. He's molding you. At the end, when, when Joseph is talking to his brothers, Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Who meant it? God. God meant it. It wasn't accidental. It wasn't something that God allowed him to go through. God sent him through that trial. So why in the world do you have the dream when you're 17? I think he probably has to give the dream to Joseph at 17 because he's going to put Joseph through a tough time and Joseph needs to remember, I've already told you, you're going to come out the back end of this thing. Why? So he won't despair. Why does God give you the promises that he does in his word? So that when you're in the trial, you won't despair. Don't give up hope. The trial doesn't last forever. Christ does. He will bring you out of it. We're running out of time. He dreamed another dream. Okay, let's go to verse 11. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. This is something I'm still looking into because I really want to know. I am very intrigued by this verse, okay? Here's why. What happened at Shechem just a few chapters ago? They killed everybody at Shechem. Remember that? Dinah was taken advantage of. The boys go in. They kill everybody, all the men. And now they're going back to Shechem? I'm, I'm so intrigued by this. Why? And what's going on? Those people have an idea. They, they still remember that. Those people in that area would have remembered. Those are the guys that murdered everybody in this town. I'd love to know more about it. I don't know. But I'm trying to dig it out, and I just can't find enough. It's one of those things you're digging, and you just can't find information on it. You know what I'm talking about? And so I'm just, like, intrigued by it. I would love to know why in the world did the brothers take the pasture down to Shechem. Shechem had good land, good pasture land. I get that. But remember, Jacob was like, we've got to get out of here, boys. They're going to try to kill us. And now the boys are going back down. I don't know, maybe they were just emboldened. Israel said to Joseph, are your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. I can see why he would be worried. Hey, your brothers are pasturing the flock down by Shechem. This is probably not a good plan. Why don't you go check and make sure everything's okay? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. 14, and so he said to him, go now, see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock, and then bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering around in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. 
So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Kind of an interesting passage. I'll give you a little. Some commentators think this was an angel. Because how would a guy overhear their conversation and then just find him out wandering in the fields? Makes sense. I mean, you know, there's no Jeep, there's no Life 360 at this point. Y'all know what that is. Probably I should. Everybody that's 20 and below is like, yes. Everybody my age is like, what? Life 360, a little thing you can put on, you know, your your 15-year-old's phone to make sure you know where they're at, right? So if they run off the road, you know where they're at. There's not that that doesn't happen in this day and age. How in the world do I know where they're at? The only way is by seeing of the eye or word of mouth. So his brothers went and fed the flock at Shechem. Joseph goes to check on them. But remember, they know if they're doing something wrong, which they may have been doing. I mean, you know, it wouldn't be out of character for these guys. They know when they see him coming, hey, this guy will tattle on us if he sees us doing wrong. Right? Remember, he's already proven that. Hey, here, here, right? here comes the foreman. He's got his clipboard and his latte. So what do they say? They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes that dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we'll say that a fierce animal's devoured him, and we'll see what becomes of his dreams. There's so much in here, and I'm not going to get through it all. I'm going to say this. They despised him because of his dreams. If you have a dream to do anything for the Lord, anything at all, especially anything great, many people will despise you for it. Period. But that doesn't mean that you should therefore not have the dream. It doesn't mean that you should give up on it and not do something great for the Lord. Do you understand everybody hates me because of it? Yep. A lot of people will hate you because you're loved of the Father. You're a Christian. And as a Christian, you're the one wearing the robe. In a sense, you're Joseph. God is doting on you. He's looking out for you. He's blessing you. You have his favor. You are loved and highly favored. I read that in a real good book. And there are people who will hate you simply because of that. Does that therefore mean you should give it up? No, of course not. It just means that people have very jealous hearts. And his brothers are very jealous of him. And it's true that there are things that he has done, his own character shortcomings, that have probably helped exacerbate that. But the truth of the matter is, a lot of this comes from a heart that's unregenerate. They just don't like the guy because he's an upstanding guy. Man, if we do evil, he's going to tattle on us. Hey, here's a, here's, a, here's a crazy idea. Don't do evil. We'll all get along then, huh? But instead they go, let's just kill him. Some wild beast has devoured him. We'll see what becomes of his dreams. Now listen, I'll close with this. Joseph's life is not really about fulfilling your life's dreams. Joseph never dreamed of being a slave. Never dreamed of being falsely accused of sexual assault or rape. He never dreamed of being forgotten in prison. 
He never dreamed of spending a night in a cistern. He never dreamed of being the slave of a powerful man in Egypt. Listen to me. Focusing on your life dream can be dangerous because you can make it an idol. Maybe that was what God was doing with Joseph. Yeah, this dream that you've had of being oh big and powerful and famous and well-known and everybody respects you, that's the idol. Now I'm going to crush it. I'm going to take you through the testing period. I'm going to take you through the, hard, the, the school of hard knocks because you have to learn some things first. And one of those, by the way, is humility. If you are full of pride and arrogance, I promise, God will knock the, the starch out of your pants before he, he fulfills that dream that you had. For a very good reason. It's him that deserves glory, not you. Don't make the dreams an idol. Two things that we can take so far from Joseph's life. Number one, what they meant for evil, God is still using for good. God is still the one that's in charge. Joseph feels like he's out of control. He just had this dream. I'm going to be great. Everybody's going to bow down to me. And now he's about to be sold as a slave. God, this wasn't the way I saw this going. Have you ever had that? Have you ever had that talk with God? God, my life wasn't supposed to go this way. It, it, there's a different path. There's a different way it's supposed to go. Don't you understand, God? I have a great plan for my life. See, that's why that gospel doesn't hold water. When you tell somebody, God loves you and he has a great plan for your life, in their mind they're like, that's awesome. I have a great plan for my life too. I like this God. Actually, God's plan for your life is to crush your dreams because first he's going to make you a servant who will do what he asks when he asks rather than looking out for your own self-interest. And if it takes putting you into obscurity to do it, he'll do that. That's exactly what he does to Joseph. First life lesson. Christianity, that's what baptism is. Christianity is when you have died to yourself. Your dreams for you, they are dead. All those big dreams for how I'm going to be so big and famous and important and rich and etc., etc. Yeah, when you went down in the water, those died. That's why when we baptize you, we tell you that you're being baptized. You're now being baptized into Christ's death and raised to newness of life in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? God is going to destroy that plan that you have. He's going to destroy that. Why? Because he has a plan. His plan is wiser, it's greater, and it's better. But first, your plan has to die. That's number one. And that's what happens in Joseph's life. Number two, he is not leaving you in the middle of that. Sometimes we feel like when all of those dreams and plans and everything goes awry, if God's left us. Where are you, God? Don't you see? Don't you see where I'm at here? I'm, I'm dying here. And here's God. Yep. Unless a grain of wheat dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. How can I make my life more fruitful for you, Lord? Die. Die. Stop with all of your great plans for your greatness. Die to it. 
and let Jesus use you. That's how your life can be more fruitful. When you get to the end of your life, listen, if you die to your own dreams and your own ambitions and your own great plans, and you let Christ have control of that, you die, those things are done, they're in the ground, you may think your life is insignificant and get to the end of your days and look back, you will not regret it. I promise you this, the first second you're in eternity, you will not regret it. But if you decide to hold on to all of those ambitions and chase all the world with all you have, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? He is worth the pit. There's a lot more I'd like to say, but we don't have the time. So let's pray. Remember that uh, prayer meeting tonight. God, I ask we could learn these lessons from Joseph's life. How, Lord, you are with your people through all the trial. How also, Lord, that it's not our dreams of our greatness that last or endure, but it's you. Only one life, and it'll soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. Remind us of that again, Lord, that it's not our dreams that mean so much. It's your will glorifying you, spending our days with our eyes on eternity. I thank you for it, Lord. ask you to be with us today, Lord. Keep us safe as we go to and from. Bring us back together again. Thank you for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.